0: going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 to kind of help us get our bearings with our next portion of our study. We're going to begin the promised kingdom this morning and we'll do part 1 this Sunday and then next Sunday we'll do part 2 with looking at uh, Abraham and then after that we move from the promised kingdom to the partial kingdom. Where we will begin to pick up considerable pace in moving along in the in the Bible, and Genesis is foundational to understand the kingdom, and what happened to the kingdom and where we're at today. So that's why we spend a little bit more time on that. So let's stand and read. We're going to read verses Ephesians chapter one, verses one through ten. Paul says, "Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus, who are in Ephesus, the faithful." And faithful in Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ. To himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace that he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence having made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of time, I'm sorry, in the dispensation of the fullness of times, that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, that you did have a plan, Lord, before the foundation of the world to unite all things in Christ, Lord, to save a people, to rescue a people, to redeem a people, Lord, even a people like us, Lord, sinners, rebels, lost at the fall, Lord, that you in your kindness would send your son so that you might unite all things in him. Thank you, Lord, that you have a plan. Thank you, Lord, that human human disobedience, Lord. We can't thwart your plan. Lord, we pray that you would encourage us, Lord, this morning to better understand your plan, that we would be comforted, we would find hope, and we would be a people, Lord, full of gratitude to you. We ask in Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You all can be seated. So you remember a few weeks ago, we started a new series, and our goal is to get an overview of the Bible that most of us have a, and the premise is that most of us don't really have the best understanding of the Bible, that we have a haphazard approach to the Bible. And so we want to get a big picture from Genesis to Revelation. You remember we said that the Bible is one book. Yes, it's made up of 66 individual parts, individual books, but it's one book. It has one author. Yes, there were probably over 40 different authors who put their pen to write the Bible, but they were moved along by the Spirit. It's breathed out by God. God is the ultimate author of the Bible, and he simply used human instruments to pen his word. And it has one subject. The whole Bible is one unified story that points to Jesus Christ and the salvation that God provides through him That is the subject of the whole Bible. And then we talked about the fact that that the Bible has one binding theme that kind of holds it together, a framework which it builds upon. And the whole Bible is about the kingdom of God. And you remember what we said, borrowing from Graham's Goldsworthy and his definition of the kingdom of God, that it's God's people in God's place, under God's rule, enjoying God's blessings. That's a basic definition of what the kingdom of God is. And you remember in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we saw that pattern of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule, enjoying God's blessing. You have Adam and Eve in the garden, right? That's God's place. It's a place that he created for man and woman, for his his creation to dwell with him. So they're in God's place. They're God's people in God's place. They're under his rule. He's given them instructions, provisions by which this relationship might be good. And as they obey God's word, they enjoy God's blessing, right? Right? You remember what God's blessing was? They have a per- this perfect relationships. They have a perfect relationship with God. They have a perfect relationship with one another, between husband and wife, and they have a perfect relationship with all of creation. And we could define that as rest, right? Doesn't mean that it was absent of work. Work was good doesn't mean that it was absent of husbands and wives talking. They talked, and that was good, but there was no friction. There was no arguing. There was no fr- fighting. There was not work didn't, ha- didn't come by the sweat of the brow. It was enjoyable. We're going to be working in heaven. In the fulfillment of the kingdom of God, right? We're going to have relationships. Heaven is not this place where we get to go to have this mansion where we're isolated. And don't we kind of have that picture? I can't wait to get to heaven because I'm going to live on this mountaintop away from everybody else, right? I don't have to deal with people. No, that's not heaven. Heaven is this community. The kingdom of God is a community of people who are restored to right relationship with their king and with one another. And we're enjoying God's blessing. Well, Adam and Eve had all that. And that's what you know, the culmination is. That's what we're moving toward. When we get to the end of our study, we'll, we'll see that in the book of Revelation. Adam and Eve had all of that in the beginning. And then something horrible happens that ruins the pattern that God had intended for his world. Adam and Eve rebel against God. They disobey his word. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so the perfect kingdom that God had established at creation now becomes what we've been calling the perished kingdom. And I'm simply borrowing... Terms and phrases from Vaughn Roberts and his book. Uh, what's it called, David? The Big Picture, or so something like that. It's over here in the booknote. But he borrows heavily from Graham's Goldsworthy and, and and this whole idea of the Kingdom of God and and so the perfect kingdom that God established at creation is now ruined. We could say humans are no longer God's people by nature. By nature, now we are what? Because we're related to Adam. By nature, we are rebels. Remember what David said? It, that uh, uh, I was conceived in iniquity. At the moment conception took place, a little sinner was created. When the egg and the sperm joined and conception took place, sinners are created, rebels are created. We are in enmity with God. And if you don't believe that, then you don't have children yet. <laughs> Isaiah said that we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. We have, we by nature, we don't turn toward God. By nature, we turn from, you remember Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned? What, were they turning toward God? No, they turned away from him. They hid from him. That's by nature what we do. We are just like our head, Adam. And so you have God's people who are no longer God's people because of what happened in the garden. We no longer live in God's place. We don't live in the garden. If you don't believe that, just walk outside. Palmdale, the Antelope Valley, is, I mean, it's one of the few places on the earth where you can see very clearly we do not live in paradise, right? Right? <laughs> But it's where God has us, and I hate that little plaque, but it's a truth you know you bloom where you're planted, this is where we're planted, so so we thrive right here, right? Now you want to have another plaque, live, love, laugh, and i don't can't stand those things, but anyway but so we no longer live in God's place, we're no longer under His rule and I say that at the same time because. God never ceases to rule. We understand that, right? God, God rules. He is king. He's creator. He's sovereign. He always rules, but we're rebels, and we reject his rule. So it's not that God doesn't rule, but we reject his rule, and we, we live as if we rule the world, and we want to rule our own lives. That's what Adam and Eve did when they ate of the tree. They said, look, we don't want to have you rule over us. You're not going to tell us what to do. You told us not to eat of this tree. We're going to eat of it. We think we know better than you. Just look at our politics. Look at our look at our world and we see. Just look inside. Even though we might be saved, we still oftentimes want to live as if we reject his rule and we want to rule ourselves. And as a result, we don't enjoy God's blessing. We live under the curse. And that's where we left off last Sunday. We moved from the promised kingdom to the parish kingdom and now we begin the promised kingdom. So we left off last Sunday with Adam and Eve having sinned against God and God escorting them out of the garden, right? And placing a cherubim there at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword so that they wouldn't come back into the tree of life. And it's very sad. It's very discouraging, but Listen, there's no reason to despair because Genesis chapter one and two, or Genesis chapter three, I should say, is not the end of the story. The story continues. The story marches on. Uh, Another way of saying it is that God is not, he was not blindsided by the fall, right? The fall didn't happen. Adam and Eve didn't go eat of the tree. And then God goes and finds them in the garden. He didn't go, oh my gosh, what happened? shocked and blindsided by it like some quarterback you know who who gets who gets blindsided by a linebacker coming around from behind him and just plows him into the ground right and his face into the turf those are great moments aren't they especially if it's the team that you don't like hey do you know who has what quarterback has been sacked the most in nfl history just just trivia for the day brett Favre, exactly Brett Favre, 525 times he's eaten the turf. Here's some of your top tens. You know who's number three? Where's Nelson at? <laughs> Roethlisberger is number three, Nelson. Roethlisberger has 501. But granted, he's played like five more years than Brett Favre, okay? So we'll give him that. Where's Where's, where's name? Tell her when she gets home, Brady is number seven, number seven with 473 face plants. I love that. And if she starts talking smack about Rogers, Aaron Rodgers, and the Packers, he's like number 11. Okay. Just let her know. So, but God wasn't blindsided by the fall, by what Adam and Eve did. You see, before Adam and Eve were created, God had a plan. Before they were disobedient, before the fall, God had already planned a rescue mission. That's what we just read about in Ephesians chapter 1. That's why we were there this morning. Let's go back and just read a couple of things there. Look at verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 1, that God chose us in him. And who is that? In Christ. When? When did he choose us? Before the foundation of the world, right? Before Adam and Eve fell, before they were disobedient, before they sinned, God had already determined a rescue mission before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption. So before time began, he had already predestined to have a people, to rescue a people, right? To adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9 says, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in him, in Christ. Things in heaven, things on the earth. So in other words, God had a rescue plan that uh, that in eternity past, He determined that he was going to rescue a people and to restore all things under the king, King Jesus, right? So this brings up another question. Well, if God knew that the fall would happen, if God knew that the fall would happen, why then did he allow it? Why didn't he just prevent it? Why didn't he just stop it? Well, if you turn to second explanations, I'll tell you, there is no second explanation. If you've turned there, listen, if you're looking for it right now, don't be embarrassed. That's why we're doing this study, okay? This is exactly why. The Bible doesn't answer that question. That if God knew that the fall would happen, why then did he allow it? It doesn't answer that question, but, but it does tell us this. In Ephesians 1 verse 11, a verse that we didn't read, it tells us that God is in control. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. In other words, everything works out according to God's plan. And it gives us it gives us a confident hope. In the midst of chaos, right? In the midst of this fallen world that we live in, in the midst of our broken lives, doesn't that give us hope to know that we're not just—it's not just fate, but there is a God who is in control, who is working everything according to the counsel of His will. He's determined in the eternity past. That he's going to establish a kingdom, and He's going to have a people for Himself, and that. Adam and Eve's disobedience did not thwart that plan. And when God accomplishes that, when he fulfills it completely, right, at the second coming of Christ, God will be honored and he will be glorified. Paul says that's the very reason that God decided to rescue the world. Notice what he says in verse 5 of Ephesians 1 there that God predestined us, those that he saves, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, so that, for, for this, because so that, to the praise of his glorious grace, for which he blessed us in the beloved. So what does Paul say that God's motivation is for his rescue operation? Does Paul say, let me tell you, Church of Ephesus, what God's plan is, why he rescued you? Because he wanted to make you happy. That was his sole motivation. Is that what it says? Certainly it results... Salvation, I don't know about you, but it results in us being happy. I mean, it results in us being overwhelmed with, with you know, over, overjoyed by his grace that, that he shows us. I don't know about you, I'm overjoyed by that. Sometimes I'm not as grateful as I should be. A lot of times I'm not. But I am overjoyed to know that I've been adopted. I was an orphan. We sing the song, I'm an, I was an orphan lost at the fall, Right? but he determined before the foundation of the world that he was going to adopt me. I'm overjoyed by that. I'm excited about that. But that's not God's primary motive, is not our happiness, right? It results in our happiness, but that's not the primary motive. The ultimate reason that God planned a rescue mission, a rescue operation the ultimate reason that he he determined to salvage the mess that we made do you know what it is what did Paul say he's concerned about his name that's what it says his, his reputation is at stake you remember Jesus taught the disciples how to pray our Father who art in heaven what Hallowed be thy name. What does that mean? I mean, we're like, I don't even know who Hal is. Hal, it just means halo. It It means honor him as holy. That's what Paul is telling us. Here's the soul, the primary motive of God's rescue operation was that God's name would be hallowed, that his name would be honored as holy. You remember Moses was at Numbers chapter twenty. They're they're moving, marching, you know, from Egypt to the Promised Land. They're going through the wilderness. This is the second time now he's been with these poor people forty years. I, I can't fault Moses. I get it. I know what kind of people we are, and and, and you know they're thirsty again. God had done miracle after miracle after miracle. He had shown his faithfulness, his, his grace toward these people over and over again. Once again, they're thirsty and they're grumbling and complaining, right? God says, Moses, speak to the rock and I'm going to give them water. I'm a patient, gracious, loving, kind God. I'm a merciful God. Moses is had it up to hear of these people, right? He is done with them. And he strikes the rock with his staff twice, right? God graciously still provides water. But what happened to Moses? Yeah, exactly. God says, you're not going into the promised land. Why? Because you did not hallow my name with the people, right? You didn't honor my name. You misrepresented me. You mischaracterized me. You, you represented me, Moses, to the people as a God who is angry with them, a God who doesn't like them, a God who is frustrated with them, a God who is put out with them. You did not hallow my name. So God is, Paul says, the whole motive for his rescue operation is that his name would be honored as holy, that it would be hallowed. In other words, God's rescue plan is all about Him rather than all about us. I know that's hard for us to hear in our narcissistic culture and society. I know we don't like to hear that because we do think. Adam and Eve thought it was all about them. We think it's all about us. Do you remember how many now well, this will be dating some of you? It certainly dates me. Oh. How many of you remember that? I think it was 1972. That Carly Simon song, "You're So Vain." You remember that? I bet you think this song is about you, right? Everybody's listening. Who was it about? Was it about Warren Beatty? Was it about Mick Jagger? Who was it about? You know, everybody's trying to guess who it's about. The people you know think it was about themselves. That's us. You're so vain. You you think this you think this is all about you, right? But we're consumed with ourselves. How many friends do you have on Facebook? I bet I got more. I don't have any. How many Twitter followers you got? I'm trying to catch up with Trump. I haven't got there yet. And we take selfies, right? We post it on our Facebook page. You put it on your Instagram. It's like, hey, look at me. And I got these cool shades on, or I've got this on, and and want everybody to see us because it's all about us. Here's a newsflash nobody cares. You think, I mean, I'm not kidding. Nobody cares. I know that's hard for us narcissistic people to hear that. But we're so focused on ourselves that we think the whole eternal plan of redemption is centered on us. But it's not. We benefit from it. But it's all about him, right? Right? It concerns us, it transforms us, but it is primarily about God and about him devising a rescue plan in eternity past that results in him being praised, in him being glorified. Why why do you think, you ever thought about this? Years ago, and this means, I mean, years ago, before we even started brewing we began to make a transition in our worship songs. And, and I would say maybe we've swung too far at times. I don't know. But, but we, we made a conscious decision. We, we, we saw that in our worship songs, most of the songs that we were singing at the time, you could probably count the number of times the word me was in the song, talking about us. We were singing about us, me, you, I, over and over and over and over again, it was so out of balance. We had a high view of ourselves, but a low view of God. And so we made a conscious decision years ago, and you see that reflected in the songs we sing today that we wanted about Him. Jeremiah put it this way He says, There is none like you, O God. You are great. And your name is great and might. Who would not fear you, O king of the nations? For this is your due, for among all the wise ones of the nations and in all their kingdoms there is none like you. God is worthy to be praised because he is altogether different than us. We are like him in the fact that we are his image bearers. We're created in his image, but he is not created in our image. He is the creator. And he is altogether different, and therefore he is worthy to be praised and honored. That's why we gather on Sunday morning, so that we can praise and honor him together corporately. Well, since the fall, man has refused to accept the right of God to be at the center of everything. And we go to great lengths to make ourselves the center of the universe. And in doing so, here's the problem with that is that we depose him. We, we you know, and the results are catastrophic. We, we, we try to dethrone him. And everything is ruined. That's what Adam and Eve did. Everything is ruined and tainted when we make ourselves the center of the universe, the center of God's plan. And we take the spotlight off of him. Remember I said that the subject of the Bible has, there's one subject. Who is it? Daryl Sparks. No, it's Jesus Christ, right? That's the main subject of the Bible. The spotlight is on him. The volume of the book, the psalmist says, speaking of Jesus, written of me. And when the spotlight is on us, it ends up in Catastrophic results. Everything is ruined. Think about it. What happened with the fall? Relationships are ruined, right? And, and, and we, we experience that, don't we? We experience some of the ruin, some of the curse. We have that in our lives. Relationships aren't what they're supposed to be. Friendships, marriages, parents and children, money's ruined, right? Take something that can be used for good and we make it bad. Another thing that's taken that we take and is supposed to meant to be good and we ruin it, sex, right? God intended with one man, one woman in, in a holy marriage forever till death do us part. sex is ruined there's adultery there's fornication there's incest there's uh, abuse of all different types food is ruined it touches it, it touches everything did you read that about burger king by the end of the year burger king is going to have meatless whoppers in every restaurant by the end of the year yeah, that's the exact expression, David, that I like mm, they're still gonna have patties, but they won't be made of beef. They will be meatless, soy byproduct of some sort. Ruined. Ruined. That is the and, and I'm not, you know, we're not Southern Baptists, so we're not gonna boycott Burger King. But that comes close to being on my list of reasons to boycott right there. Vacations are ruined. I mean, it touches everything. You've heard me talk about this before. The Sparks vacations, they are not rest. (laughs) They are not relaxing. They are not good. We affectionately, in our home, we call them the vacations from hell. They just were. The alternator broke down on on, uh, one trip. Fuel pump went out on another trip. Pulled over by a deputy sheriff on the same trip. Shannon and I, as the kids got older, we would just try to go away, just her and I. We would get phone calls from one of the kids. Hey, this kid did such and such, and we've got to come home now. That happened twice. Vacations from hell. Everything's ruined. I mean, there's no dimension of life where the dust of death hasn't settled, right? All because we seek to dethrone God. Now, all that sounds really gloomy. And it would be, and it would be a depressing way to leave us this morning if the perished kingdom was the end of the story, but it's not. There's no reason to despair because God has a plan that he set in motion before the foundation of the world. And that plan is to put things right, to reestablish his kingdom through his son, and everything, according to Graham's Goldsworthy, is moving along according to plan. And that's comforting. that's encouraging that this isn't the end of the story. And since God's plan is eternal. We shouldn't be surprised to see hints of it even during the dark days of the fall and the and the and its immediate aftermath, right? I think the first hint that we see that God has a plan is that in the midst of God's or in the midst of man's rebellion against God in the garden, we see, as Vaughn Roberts says, we see human sin is met by Divine judgment, but also God shows great mercy. Human sin is met by divine judgment, but God also shows great mercy. And I've just kind of encapsulated this way, is that we see judgment mingled with mercy, not only immediately at, at the fall, but in the chapters right after that. In other words, God remains gracious to his rebellious people. You remember with Adam and Eve that they rebelled against God, they hid from him, and yet he still loves them. They hide from him and he moves toward them, right? He comes to seek them out and he provides clothes for them. And so you see right there, we see see judgment and mercy. Yes, he's going to mete out consequences to them, but he doesn't destroy them, does he? I think his love and his grace is most clearly seen. We see his mercy there in Genesis 3.15 where he says to, he's actually talking to the serpent and he's meeting out the curse upon him. And he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman between your offspring and her offspring and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And, and what does this promise say? See, we're, we're talking about the beginning of the promise of the kingdom, right? Right in the midst of, of the fall judgment mingled with mercy and the promise says this that sometime in the future that eve is going to have a son who will destroy the evil one and and it's a veiled prophecy it becomes clear as the old testament moves along and as christ comes but it's concerning the work of jesus on the cross where Jesus defeated Satan, and one day he's coming back to complete the job. And that what he, he comforts Paul, comforts the church of Rome with this. In his parting words to them, he says to the, to the believers in, in Rome, he says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under his feet. In other words, he says, The life that you're living right now, believers in Rome. Believers at Berean, it isn't the end of the story. I don't know about you. That's encouraging. That's incredibly comforting and helpful. And so in the next several chapters, we also see this pattern of judgment mingled with mercy continue. You remember, even as he drives them out of the garden, and they're not allowed to come back in. There were two trees, Right? One stood for mercy, and the other one was judgment. The tree of knowledge of good and evil is judgment. They ate of it, and they've been judged. But notice that the other tree, the tree of life, though they were driven from it, it still remained. And what does that do? That tells us that there's hope, right? That the tree remains. And we're going to see it again in Revelation chapter 22, that it's there in the fulfillment of the kingdom. That same tree. Judgment mingled with mercy, it means there's hope for rebellious people. There's hope of eternal life. And so as we said that he drives them out of the garden, he doesn't destroy them. In fact, God shows them mercy, doesn't he? Not only by letting them live, but he gives them children. Firstborn child is Cain, their second born child is Abel. We see judgment there with mercy. Cain comes along and they both children uh, grow up and they know, they understand that they only can approach God by sacrifice, understand that they're sinners in, in, in need of a savior, in need of a rescuer. God doesn't accept Abel's sacrifice, he ex- or Cain's sacrifice, he accepts Abel. We're not told why. He just doesn't. And Abel gets mad, I'm sorry, Cain gets mad at Abel because he's accepted and Cain's not, and he kills him. How he killed him, I don't know. We're not told. But he kills him. And we see the effects of the fall. God spares Abel's life, right? But he cast him out of Eden. He drove him out of Eden and told him he was cursed to be a no man, that the ground would not yield for him. He would basically scrape by, eke out into existence. Cain says, the, you know, your judgment on me is too much. I can't bear it. I'm going to be found. I'm going to be killed when people find out what I've done. And God shows him mercy, right? Drove him out, judgment, but he showed him mercy. And what was the mercy? He puts a mark on him. What that mark was, I don't know. I don't know if it was a a tattoo, Jesus loves me, you know, I don't know what it was. Or the rabbi said it was a, you know, it was like a dog, you know, that he gave him to anybody who would come along and uh, want to hurt Cain, that the dog would, you know, kill him. I don't know what the mark was, but it was a mark that says, don't touch this man. God was merciful to him. The ungodly line of Cain multiplies in chapter 4. You remember one of his um, his great great grandson was this fellow by the name of Lamech, and he is just like his great great grandfather, just like Cain. He's he, he's a, he's an evil man. He's a he's the first polygamist we see in the Bible. He's got multiple wives, and he is mean to those wives. He's a harsh man. He's a he's a he's a taskmaster. He's cruel. He hates people. He hates God. And so you have this ungodly line of Cain that moves forward and then we get a glimpse of grace at the end of chapter 4 there, verse 25 and 26. Let's look at that and see what it says real quick. It says that well, I'm in Ephesians. I'm not going to find it there, am I? Ephesians 4, 25 or Genesis 4, 25 and 26. So Lamech the God, ungodly line of Cain moves on and it says that Adam knew his wife again. They had just lost a child, right? Cain killed Abel. They bore a son named Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel, whom Cain killed. And as for Seth, to him also a son was born. He named him Enosh. And the men began to call upon the name of the Lord. So although although the ungodly line of Cain multiplies, now we see mercy. Adam and Eve have another child, the Seth. And God is merciful to multiply the godly seed also. And then in chapter four, we chapter five, we've talked about this: the rhythm of mortality. So and so begot so and so. Right? They had, you know, so many children. They lived so many years, and then what? He died. And then you hear that that you know that rhythm that cadence over and over again all the way through chapter 5 we see the spread of sin we see judgment over and over that people are dying and then you get to verse 23 and we see that the cadence the rhythm of judgment is broken up so all the days of Enoch were 365 years and Enoch walked with God and he was not for God took him And so what does that tell us? Here's a man who walked with God. He lived 300 and some years and God takes him. We don't hear the same thing that he begot so-and-so and he lived so many years and he what? Nope, he didn't die, right? It's broken up. Judgment mingled with mercy. And so it gives us hope that in the fallen world it's possible to know God and to escape the penalty of our sin, which is death. And then, in Chapter Six, we see the effects of the fall, verses one through seven. It came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, all of whom they chose and the Lord said, "My spirit shall not strive with men forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be one hundred and twenty years and there says, there were giants on the earth in those days and Also after, when the sons of God came to the daughters of men, and I don't know what that means. My understanding, my best understanding is that that simply means that the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth mixed together. And they bore children to them, and there were mighty men, and they were who were of old, men of renown. The Lord saw the wickedness. So he sees the corruption of the godly line, right? And so now we're beginning to lose hope. That there's going to be this promised son that's going to be born to Eve who's going to be the rescuer of the world. If the line becomes corrupt, who's going to save the world? He saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Every intent of the thought of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. And he said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. For I am sorry that I have found them. So we see judgment right God is going to destroy humanity and just when things seem to be at their worst there's this ray of hope that breaks through the darkness but Noah verse 8 found grace in the eyes of the Lord this is the genealogy of Noah verse 9 said he was a just man perfect in his generations and Noah walked with God I don't know about you, but in light of the previous verses there, the fact that uh, it is remarkable to me that one man found grace. In light of the fact that there's this evil prevailing upon the earth, the wickedness of humanity, one man found grace. That's remarkable, and that's what Moses wants us to see here in the book of Genesis. Here's a question. Why Why did Noah find grace? And we're about ready to wrap up. Why did Noah find grace? Is it because verse 9 says that he was a just man, he was perfect, he was righteous, and he walked with God? Is that why he found grace? I see some of you shaking your heads no. Some of you don't want to commit. But the answer is no. Noah was just like everybody else in the preceding verses there of chapter 6. He was wicked. Inwardly and outwardly. He too grieved God. He too was under God's judgment. The, the only thing that uh, that distinguished him from the rest of humanity is what? Verse eight. The grace of God. Unexplained, unmerited, undeserved, he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. But you say, Hmm, I don't buy that because verse nine says that tells us why he found grace it's a result of him being a just man it's a result of him walking with god that he was perfect in his generation it's a result of his righteousness that's why he found grace he was a great guy he loved god and that's why god was gracious to him and saved him now i'm going to say something that's going to probably trigger some of you okay that is fake news okay that is bad news it is not truth because if we say that he found grace because of his righteousness then what we're saying is that we earn god's favor by our righteousness is that what the bible teaches that we earn god's favor that we get saved because we are such a savable people we're such a good people Paul says, Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, not one, no, not even Noah, before he found grace. Paul puts it this way, and as he's writing to Titus, he says, in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, he says, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another, but when the goodness and loving God of our Savior... Loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. So the only thing that distinguishes us from the culture is the same thing that marked Noah out from the people of his day. Grace. Unmerited unearned, undeserved favor before God, the outreaching favor of God. Do, do you know how ugly and obnoxious you and I must appear to unbelievers, to non-Christians, to our non-Christian friends and family when we speak as if salvation is about us? Do, do you know how how distasteful that is? How off-putting that is when, when we make salvation... That it's about us. Well, I was. You know, well, I've always sought God. I've always loved God. I've always been a pretty good person. Or, or like this, when we talk about someone who doesn't understand the gospel, we're like, "What's the matter with them? Are they are they deaf? Are they idiots? I mean, a babe should be able to understand the gospel that we need a savior." And we elevate ourselves and we look condescendingly upon it. Do you know how ugly that is? Noah found grace. You and I found grace. Paul says this about in Ephesians. He said that unbelievers, our minds are darkened in our understanding. We're alienated from God because we are ignorant, right? We are deaf, We are blind. We need the scales taken off. We need our ears unstopped. When God does that, that's because he's been gracious to us, not because we deserve that. Noah found grace. And because of grace, he was a just man. He was a righteous man. He was now one of God's people, and God was going to save him. And so we see in the midst of that chapter judgment mingled with mercy, and I'm going to stop there, but I think the, the truth of judgment mingled with mercy is, is best illustrated as we come to the table, and Mr. Holloman leads us in that, right? And Jason comes up to lead us in a song as we go out with thinking about judgment mingled with mercy, the best illustration at all of all is the cross of Calvary.